0: I have always found Oldham Lane to be so welcoming. I'm greeted at the door with people that say, it's so good to have you back. I see familiar faces. And then Chris comes back and tells me, he goes, hey, if you would, while you're speaking, stay away from the microphone. (laughs) And then I realized that he had given me this. And I may fight this all night. Apparently, this was on a much larger head earlier today. I'm having a hard time keeping it on. Seriously, I appreciate being here, and I don't want to take advantage of the circumstance, but as Chris announced, this is the beginning of preacher training week, and gentlemen, school is in session. I could not help but observe, and if everyone will indulge me just a moment, I'd like these first two rows to get your light out, because apparently, you don't know the song that James led us, so get your fingers up there, all of them, up high where we can see them, right? I don't know where you stand on... Praise teams and choirs and all that kind of stuff, but please enjoy this rendering as presented by our preachers here at training camp. You ready? This big light of mine, ma- let's hear it, I want to hear it. I'm not going to do it. They want me to solo, solo nobody can hear me, but we're going to hear you, okay, here we go. This big light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, this big light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This big light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine all the time, let it shine, oh yeah. Okay, I thought they were broken. They're not, they're good. Guys, it's just beginning. Five full days of this from me. Brace yourself. No, we have a good time. We always make it our policy that... uh, We're all peers here. These are not my students. I think that uh, James made an excellent point, and that is every one of these that I've done, this marks my 24th year of doing preacher training camps. Even last year, virtually, I did preacher training camp, and I have been looking to fill my spot, training my replacement. And right now, I see 12 great candidates who I feel that at the end of the week can comfortably... They can step into my shoes. You can't quite fill my pants because I'm filling them out pretty good myself, but... I am looking forward to our week together, and I'm thankful to Chris for giving me the opportunity to share with you. If you will, take out your Bibles. I would like to, in about 20 minutes, share with you some insights from one of my most favorite stories in all of Scripture. It is the story of a blind man that Jesus heals. It's found in John chapter 9. John, of course, is one of the Gospels, and John's stories to me are the best of the stories. John is the most imp- the most not impersonal, he is the most personal of all of the gospel writers in my opinion. And where are there are some great miracles that Jesus did and there are some teaching that uh, Jesus did that John doesn't even record. John picks about seven miracles and spotlights those. He's kind of like, man, these are the best ones of all the miracles if dare somebody say one miracle is better than another. But all the stories that John tells involve relationships. They involve people in very unique circumstances and how Jesus interacted with them. And I think it helps us as we live in a world without miracles, but a world that should be full of relationships. And how is it that we are going to act in those like Jesus? How are we going to talk in those relationship like Jesus? How are we going to be like Jesus as we interact with people? And I think John chapter 9 has a great lesson For us in this story of Jesus healing the blind man one piece of disclaimer Uh, when people tell me that was a great message I always say well I stole it out of the Bible it's not mine okay I'm not very creative on my own and when I am it's because I forgot where I stole it from that's what creativity is forgetting that's first lesson creativity is forgetting who you stole it from But I do know where I got the thoughts for this lesson. It's been more than 40 years ago. A man uh, stood up at what then was called Harding University's 13 and 1 lectures and presented much of this thought. And so I take no credit for it. But it has carried me in my thinking for years. And I hope that I do not only that message, but more importantly, the text of God's word, the justice. You remember that... um, Television program still on Sesame Street, right? And they had a familiar song in that. We're not going to have to sing it, so relax, okay? Who are the people in your neighborhood, right? The people that you meet each day. All of us have neighbors. They might be one plot of land over. they may be right next door. They may be in the apartment above, the apartment below, but we all have neighbors. And if we don't have those neighborhood neighbors, we have neighbors where we work, places where we go to school, we have neighbors where we play, we have all these neighbors that we interact with, and whether we realize it or not, we have a tendency to hang a little label on them. We put a little name tag. It's the way that we identify them, and sometimes it's good, but sometimes it can actually impact in a negative way, well, the way that we interact with them. That we no longer see them as our mission, but we have categorized them into some cubbyhole, and that is at the heart of this message. As I want to look at how it is that the people who viewed the man that Jesus healed and what that might say about the way that we view people. And more importantly, before the evening's out, if I've done justice to the text and to my intent, it's this. I want to share with you the way that I believe Jesus sees every single person. All of you and me and all of the people in our neighborhood. Let's look at the text itself. John opens, and as he, speaking Jesus, was uh, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, as long as day, night is coming, when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, applied the clay to the eyes, said to him, that's the blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed, and he came back, seeing And the neighbors, therefore, said, those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? The story doesn't end there, but we'll pause for a moment. We'll make some observation. I believe that John wrote this by divine inspiration. In other words, John wrote exactly what God wanted him to write. But I find it interesting that John doesn't give this blind man any kind of a name. He just says, there was a blind man. We find out a little bit more about the blind man's background a little later, but we don't even know that. It's almost as if he is just one thread in this vast tapestry that is humanity. And John says, oh yeah, there was a guy. Oh yeah, he was a blind guy, right? And that's what we have about this man. So I think, first of all, how often is it that we simply look at people from their external appearance, right? There's this guy, there's this gal, there's this guy uh, or man, there's this lady, there's this person. Now, we all recognize each other externally. I could not help when Zane walked in with that Zane McCurley swagger. He kind of looked over at me and was like, that's right, it's me. I knew that was Zane. If he had walked any other way, I would go, that's an imposter. But you know what? I know that there's more to Zane than his external appearance, as lovely as it might be. But here we find ourselves that we simply say, you know what? They're a no-name. We just have an outward appearance. He's tall. She's short. He's fat, she's skinny, they're dark-haired, they're dark-skinned. All those different ways of viewing them, simply to categorize them in some ways to almost put them off. You see, we don't see the, per, the, we, the person as a person. We just see them as a people. And so John says there was this guy, and his appearance was that he couldn't see anything. How John saw this man was the fact that he didn't see much. At least as this part of the story goes, a little bit, we'll see that he perhaps sees clearer than virtually anyone else. Then the second thing is that the apostles ask a theological question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? They are buying into what was a philosophy or a thought at that day and age, and that was that maladies of a physical nature sometimes, somehow tied to some kind of a spiritual infirmity. You sin and there is a malady. Now, I'm not talking simply about consequences of one's sin, but if you sin, then terrible things happen to you. And so, the apostles, the disciples that are following along Jesus go, we have a question. Now, she's a divorcee and we were just wondering, how does God see the divorce Or I don't know if you know this, but he's been in an addiction treatment facility, and we were just wondering if we could. Or, or I don't know if they used to be over at this church, or they used to go to that place, and they're here amongst us. What should we do with them, right? We give them a, a theological description. We might even extend that into a religious group, right? Well, they don't believe in this, or they practice that. Or they think you should do this. Or I don't agree, and we don't ever see the people. We see all their problems, at least as we see it, theological. What are we going to do with this man, right? Not, is there a way we could help him? Or is there something else that needs to be done? Or why has he been neglected? It's what? Uh, I just almost see them stepping over him. Anyway, about this theological question that I have. And sometimes we can be the same. We can look at individuals from that, oh, it's a spiritual perspective, but we see no farther than what we, ref, what we designate or what we see is their sin. We don't see the person, well, we don't see them as a person. It goes on, the text says, look at verse 8, the neighbors who saw him, well, they said, isn't he the one who previously was a beggar? He was the one that sit and begged. Now he's a social issue, right? I don't know how it is here in Abilene, but in Oklahoma City, we have a homeless problem, right? We have one of these social issues. I don't know if you know this, but those particular individuals have bought that piece of property down the road. Okay, I can't say that down the road's a school. That's great to have in your neighborhood. But we begin to wrestle with this fact that it's not people we're dealing with, but it's a social issue. We might categorize it by, well, you know, there was a pride parade in our uh, city today. Now, I'm not dealing with the issue, or but what I'm saying is we look right past the people and, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. Do you know what's happening in our cities? With little concern for the very people that Jesus came to die for, as he put it, it's the sick that need a physician but we are not interested in the sick we're just interested in the fact that they're sick around us and so he begins they begin to say well yes this is the beggar this is the one that that social problem again never seeing the person for a person and he goes on as the story unfolds we find out that jesus did well from a spiritual i should say religious leader perspective he did a big no no He did what he did on the Sabbath. I need you to understand two different contexts. Number one, as God had prescribed in the old covenant, the Sabbath was to be kept holy. It was a day of rest and not work. But the Pharisees had written their own personal commentary. I suppose if the Pharisees had church offices... All of their thinking were behind them, so when you took their picture, it would all be behind them. Everything they knew about the Sabbath, most of which had come from them, not from God. I mean, they even had how many paces you could take. And so when Jesus does this good thing that heals a man who's been born blind, they raise the red flag. You did this on the Sabbath. I, here's the other context. Can you imagine that? I mean, let's just take something that's so outlandish we can't imagine. But here's the Titanic. It sinks to the bottom of the ocean and it all of a sudden emerges out of the water, floats in the air, lands in New York on a Sunday. And we go out to check it out, and somebody goes, Are you missing church today? And you say, Well, uh, that's obscure. Uh, That's uh, that's just a wild vow. But that's what this is. This is a miracle. And all they can think about is that this has been done on the Sabbath. And so, verse 16 says, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man be because a person that is a sinner cannot perform such signs? And a division rose amongst them. And so now, it's almost as if the man who was at the issue, he gets put on top of his head everything about Jesus. Right? Right? He's suffering for what Jesus did, but they pushed him out of the way and they're going back and forth. I see this guy going, maybe this is my chance to exit, right? I'll just step out, you guys go, but that's what happens. Because now we see that they're a problem to be solved. Whether it's a problem within our church, whether it's a problem within our family, a problem within our community, what? This is a problem, right? I don't know if you know this about them, but it's a problem. I got somebody called me on the way here to Abilene this afternoon and says, Man, I didn't want to bother you, but we got a problem that we need to fix. Before it was over, I had to say, Yes, you need to quit making it a problem and calling me about the problem because it's not a problem. But we have problems, because problems gives us purpose, right? If we can find the problem, then we can be involved in, well, not solving the problem, but identifying the problem, and everybody go, hey, I'm glad you did that. So they're going back and forth about this. The blind man's going, can, can I leave? Am I done? And they said, just hold on a second. And so we see people sometimes from that perspective, we see them as an issue that has to be solved. But the good news is they're going to call his family in. His mom and his dad. Finally, somebody on the blind man's side. Somebody that will see him for his value. Someone that gave him life and, if you will, nourished him in his life. Though I question why it was that he was begging if he had a family, right? But they bring them in and they say, explain this. So now we're just passing the buck, right? Jesus made a mistake. The blind man made a mistake for seeing when he was blind. And now the parents, what do you say about it? And they're afraid. Because it's made quite clear and had been made quite clear that anybody who affirmed Jesus for who he claimed to be would be put out of the synagogue. Another social and religious circle that was needed to be dealt with. So they ask him and here's what their answer is. We know that this is our son. And we know that he is blind. But as to how he can see, we do not know. Parentheses, though it's not in the original text. Maybe in an ancient manuscript. May we be excused, please. I mean, they don't even come. They go, he's our son. They're our mom or our dad. That's my brother. I I can't deal with them because we're family. I always say one of the greatest human institutions is family. And one of the worst institutions, human institutions, is family, right? It can be great and it can be awful. And sometimes individuals say, well, I would tell them more about the gospel. But you know... It causes some friction in my family. It's a problem between my mom and her. I don't see eye to eye with them. And so I don't want to do that because it might mess up my family. And that's kind of how they are. We don't want to do anything that's going to mess up our physical family. And we don't want to do anything that we think might mess up our spiritual family. And so here's the deal. He's a grown man. It's on him. I mean, they don't make any pretense of trying to defend him. They don't even, I mean, they boil it down to the relationship. Family, neighbor, coworker, fellow classmate, whatever label that just simply says, well, we have a relationship, but we don't have a relationship, right? And so we kind of can push them off and consider them. This comes to, and we could look great, in great detail at the text, but this comes to kind of a climax The Pharisees get frustrated. They're frustrated at the fact that they have this division. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Yeah, but if you did it on the Sabbath and you healed, nobody can do that unless a righteous man, but a righteous man. And they're all confused. They're mad at the man. They're mad at Jesus. They're mad at the parents. They're mad at each other. And so finally, they leave all reason behind. And they just blurt out. Okay? Okay. Get all the way down then to verse 34, uh, excuse me, verse 24, they say, So a second time they call in the man, that's the blind man who had been born blind, and said to him, Give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. And he comes back with this response. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know one thing. I do know that where I was blind, and now I can see, and they said for, to him, "How did you open how did he open your eyes?" He's frustrated too. He said, "I told you already, already you did not listen. Why do you not want to hear it again? You do not want to become one of his disciples, do you? I think that's maybe a little his frustration coming out. And they reviled him and said, "You are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where He is from." And the man said, well, he's here. It's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from. Since he opened my eyes, we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. And since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that one opened the eyes of a person were blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they explode. It is hard to see it printed in black and white and not in all caps like we would text it. But they explode, and here's what they say. They answered and said, "You were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching him." uh, Excuse me, and you are teaching us. And they put him out, not out of their midst, out of the synagogue. They pushed him out of the religious community. They pushed him out of the social circle. They pushed him out. He says, "Guess what? He's too much trouble." and they pushed him out. The man sees more clearly who Jesus is than any of those religious leaders, but he's the one that's out. Because it's in to see the labels. It's in to see the maladies. It's in to see the problem. It's in to see the trouble. It's easy to be in because you can see the sin. It's good to be in, and so we buy in to all of the stuff I promise you though that we wouldn't just leave you at what we sometimes have a tendency to do and we wouldn't just look at what they did but we would have an answer for what it is that we should do and what we should be about when we look at other people and that is to see people as the persons go all the way back to the first of the chapter in answer to the question who sinned this man or his parents Jesus answers it this way It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. I do not believe that Jesus said, God made him blind so that I could heal him and you would all be wowed. What he said is, this man is blind and he is an opportunity for God to be glorified. He is a way in which God can work in this world that would show everybody who God really is. And that wasn't just the way that Jesus viewed the blind man. It's the way that Jesus viewed the lame man. It's the way that Jesus viewed the dead man. It's the way that Jesus viewed all the men, and all the women too. He said, they are here, whatever their circumstance might be, that God might work in them and he might work through them And the glory of God might shine forth from them. And that's the way Jesus' followers look at others. We know that there are sinners. We know that there are those that have social issues and problems. We know that there are those who have religious differences that in time need to be worked out. But what we need to see is that every single person is an opportunity The Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians put it this way. He says, and because of that we no longer see individuals according to the flesh. In fact, he said, there was a time that, I paraphrase, we saw Jesus in the flesh. That's the only way we knew him. We knew where he was from. We knew what he looked like. We knew the sound of his voice. But in time we found out that he was so much more than those appearances. We don't see him that way any longer. And as such, we don't see others any longer that way as well. I want to encourage you to put those social eyes aside and put on those Jesus eyes. That looks at the person that cut you off on the highway. The person that said something ugly about you. The somebody that mistreated your kids. The person that has very staunch religious Opinions that are very different from yours. The guy who mows his yard too short and overlaps onto your yard and mows your yard too short. And everybody in between, through the eyes of Jesus, through this individual, God is waiting to work. God is ready to be glorified in their life. And that makes them special. There is an old, old poem in which... It is the story of an auction. And there was an old violin that is placed out for the auction, and somebody bid a dollar, and then, as the poem goes, someone two, and it seems to stall about three. And finally, an old man from the back of the auction hall walks forth and he picks up the violin and he plays a beautiful song. The auctioneer, looking at a ripe crowd for new bidding, says, What do I bid for this violin? The first, 1,000. The second, 2,000. The next one, 3,000. Finally, someone leaning over goes, I don't get the difference. Why all the change? It's the same violin. The man replies to him, it is simply seeing the violin in the hands of a master. The value of people is the price that was paid for it. The price that was paid for every single person is the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes it most valuable. You pray with me please god may we see our neighbors the way that your son sees them so much so that we are willing to sacrifice that we are willing to serve that we are willing to surrender that you might be glorified in them and through them use us as your instruments to facilitate that and father if we refuse to allow us to be used then move us out of the way that you might not be inhibited from fulfilling your purpose. You have given your son for the life of every single man and woman that we might recognize their value. And lest we forget, there was a time when we ourselves had the label of lost, enemies of the cross, sinners, separated from the commonwealth. But because of the blood of your son Jesus, we have been reconciled back to you. We have been restored to that place. We have a home and a hope with you one day. Father, let us realize that simply those who surround us are those who are waiting to be worked on and worked through by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I said, for all of, in, our, in the prayer for all of us, there was a time in which we had one of those labels. In fact, you may carry one of those labels today and you don't even know it. But here's the label that you don't have to wear anymore, and that is separated from God. Whether it's separated because you've never become a child of God, separated because you've returned back to sin, separated from God because you're a quote-unquote Christian, but you haven't been acting like it or doing anything about it. We don't do it by tradition. We do it because this is a great opportunity to say, you know what, I don't wear want to wear that label anymore. And I'm not going to look at others, at labels, at anybody else through labels anymore either. If there's a way we can pray for you, a decision that you need to be made, some other way that we can help you, we want to forge you this opportunity as we sing this song. You just come down front. James, Chris, myself, we'll be glad to talk with you and see what we can do. If there's a way we can help you, come on down as we stand and we Mm -hmm. sing together.